and let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, you are the God who speaks, and when you speak, it is true and life-giving and food for our souls. So, Father, in your great love and kindness, please speak to us now. Please use me as your weak servant to speak clearly and truthfully as I should. And please, Father, be honoured in the preaching and the hearing of your word. For our good and your glory, we pray. Amen. Uh, One of my most memorable experiences from my apprenticeship as a chef uh, was on a dreary Wednesday afternoon at Box Hill TAFE working with stone fruit. Uh, One of the fellow apprentices was really struggling to remove the stone from their fruit and so with peach in hand she plunged the knife in to remove it only to go all the way through and get it stuck in her palm. Uh, This resulted in a swift trip to hospital to have it removed. But what makes this so memorable is not the screams, not the look on her face, not the panic or the mass blood or anything really to do with the event itself but actually what happened the next day. I was back at work in the restaurant uh, and pretty eager to tell my colleagues of the event, the foolishness of the choice of tool, the stupidity of the decision and the panic that followed. However, as I told them to their smiles and laughs, uh, I was squeezing limes for a dressing. And it just so happened that I could not find our usual hand juicer and had decided to replace it with my largest chef's knife. Now, you might be guessing where the story's going, but just hold on. I joked and I laughed and I told them the story, and as I did, the blade twisted in my hand, and as I squeezed that lime, my finger ran promptly down the blade, causing lots of blood, a bit of panic, four stitches, and a lasting scar. That teaches me at least one valuable lesson still to this day, that we must learn from the mistakes of others. And the events of 1 Kings 20 are given for this exact purpose. In the New Testament, Paul tells us that part of the reason that the Old Testament is written down in all its gory detail is actually to teach and to warn us so we will not repeat them. And in 1 Kings 20, we're still living in the aftermath of what happened at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, where God showed up in glorious fashion to reveal himself with fire falling from heaven and the false prophets slaughtered. Last week, we concentrated on Elijah and what happened to him in the aftermath as he broke down and went on the run, despairing at the lack of change in Israel. But Elijah doesn't even feature in this chapter, he's still off, the run, uh, off on the run, presumably. The focus is all about Ahab. Did you notice that as Andrew read it, that the prophets are not named in the story and a whole year passes between these two battles really just to draw our attention in on Ahab. What is the king of Israel doing in the wake of Mount Carmel? And just so we're clear, this is not going to be a be more like Ahab kind of story. It's the opposite. Ahab is the anatomy of disobedience, a model of how to make a mess of your life and your kingdom, and especially in how to ignore and to not listen to God. Because central to the message of the Bible is actually we are to respond to God by listening to him, 
The true and living God of the whole universe is a speaking God. This is exactly what we saw last week in 1 Kings 19. As Elijah broke down, went on the run, God seeks him, finds him and speaks to him. To know God is to listen to him and to truly listen to God is to obey him. This is the basic response of God throughout the whole Bible. And Ahab squarely sits in the negative example on how you can do all you can possibly want to ignore him and to refuse to listen to him. But as Ahab shows us tonight how to not listen to God, what I think we'll find most disturbing about this chapter is how much of ourselves we will see. How often we are actually so much like Ahab in this story and how much we need to learn from his mistakes and heed the warning that this chapter will finish on. So as I said, keep your Bibles open, 1 Kings 20. If we want to make sure we don't listen to God, the best and first thing we'll do is ignore him completely. We see this in verses 1 to 12. Uh, In verse 1, Ahab is in quite a pickle. Uh, the big bad Ben-Hadad, the king of Aaron, shows up with his entire army, along with 32 of his buddies and their armies. And it's meant to be this intimidating scene as they show up, they attack, and they start making demands out of their supreme advantage. Verse 3, your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. And what does Ahab do? Well, he essentially says, take what you want. Verse 4, just as you say, my lord, the king, I and all I have are yours. Now, it's hard to tell if it was fear or maybe he was hoping that if he just kind of gave this up, that would be the end of it and perhaps they would leave. We can't be sure, but what we are sure of is it doesn't go well. As Ben-Hadad sees uh, Ahab essentially roll over, he then ups the ante in verses 5 to 6 as he says, well, tomorrow I'll send the boys over to search the place and I'll just take everything that I value. Now, Ben-Hadad is not playing very fair, but nor does he have to. And although we don't want to be too harsh on Ahab yet, surely this would have been a good time to pray, right? to cry out to God, to at least maybe seek a prophet for some form of advice. But what do we get in verses 7 to 9? Well, we get godless elders who give him godless advice, which leads to a godless decision. Now, Ahab, he does refuse now to pander to Ben-Hadad's wishes, which sees him in verse 10 get very angry and throw down some pretty serious threats. And it's quite difficult to know what's going on in Ahab's mind in verse 11 when he says this, tell him the one who takes off his armour should not boast like one who takes it off. He's essentially saying don't count your chickens before they hatch. This is like the schoolyard version of you and what army, except in this case there's 33 armies all lined up to attack them. So it's actually hard to know what's going on. Maybe he's getting a bit lippy. Maybe he's arrogant. Or perhaps, in my thinking, he's so immature, this is just a final verbal blow before the inevitable defeat happens. But either way, in verse 12, it doesn't go well because Ben-Hadad gets ready for battle and to invade. 
But I want you to see that what is most shocking here is not Ahab's strategy or maybe his arrogance in verse 11. It's the complete absence of God. The picture of fire falling from heaven is still fresh in his mind. He can probably still smell the burnt sacrifice that was consumed. There's probably puddles on the ground after the three-year drought had just ended at the word of God through Elijah and Ahab still ignores God and shuts him out completely. It's shocking, isn't it? Even disturbing how defiant he is in the face of reality. But I think we know how quickly we do the same. When under the pump, when the pressure is on, how easily do we just simply decide that we can think our way out, plan our way out, talk our way out? How often do we just act as if God isn't present or God doesn't speak? We just ignore him and shut him out of our decision-making entirely. So let me ask you right now, as we kick off 1 Kings 20, have you allowed yourself to live without reference to God in certain aspects of your life? Are you ignoring God? And maybe to answer that, you can ask yourself some questions. Are you making time to read God's word and to ask him to speak to you by his spirit? Are you giving yourself time to reflect on what he says, praying for wisdom in how to actually apply what God says and longing that God would then work in you and through you in every aspect of life or any situation you face? As you study, as you go to work, as you meet with friends or process life in a pandemic, Is God and his word actually shaping your thinking and guiding every decision? How easily do we lose sight of the fact that our most basic and important daily task is to listen to God, to rely on him and to have him at the centre of our whole being? Because sadly it is our default especially when things are tough and when we're stressed, to just roll up our sleeves and think it's all about us. Ahab shows us a sure way to not listen to God is to just shut him out of your life completely. But sadly, this doesn't just happen when things are tough. In verses 13 to 22, uh, sorry, 21, Ahab shows us that a sure way to not listen to God is to make sure we don't acknowledge or thank him when he does speak. Look at verse 13. Meanwhile, or perhaps better in the ESV, behold, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, unannounced. This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Despite Ahab's insistence on ignoring God, God mercifully intervenes, shows up, demands his attention in order to give him a generous promise of victory. This vast army, these 33 armies will be given into your hand today. This word of hope, this act of grace, it's unasked for and it's certainly undeserved. And why does God do it? Then you... That is, you, Ahab, singular, will know that I am the Lord. 
This is who God is. The God of grace who seeks the undeserving to bless them and draw them to himself. And how does Ahab respond, spiritual guy that he is? Well, verse 14, but who will do this? And then after the prophet tells him that it's going to be the junior officials, Ahab can only muster, oh, but who will start the battle? To which the prophet says, you will. As God mercifully shows up, speaks to Ahab to promise him an unlikely victory, then even explains how it will happen, what does then Ahab do? Well, in verses 15 to 21, uh, 21, he just takes the information and moves on. No acknowledgement, no thanks, no awareness, no care for God's generous intervention and promise. He just gets on with it. His silence is deafening, especially as we see how clearly the battle is won only through God's initiative and provision. Did you hear the strategy? They are to take 232 junior officials, which actually sounds a bit grander than it really is. It's literally they're just young guys. And so Ahab is to march out against Benadad's 32 armies with his 232 unskilled boys, while in verse 17 he leaves his 7,000 best troops at home for later. Victory is unlikely to say the least. But that is the whole point. This will only happen because the victory belongs to God. And we see this especially that the whole battle takes place as Ben-Hadad contributes to his own downfall. In verse 12, he orders the attack in the midst of a pub session while they're drinking. And he has to be drunk given what he commands in verse 18. Where are we? There we are. He says, if they come out for peace, take them alive. And if they've come out for war, take them alive. He's essentially saying, while they're trying to kill you, don't harm them. The enemy king is actually helping Ahab's unskilled boys have success. The victory is so clearly God's that we're just told in verse 20, as a matter of fact, each one struck down his opponent. And at that, the Arameans fled with the Israelites in pursuit. Uh, All is not perfect, however. Ben-Hadad escapes, to which God again intervenes through an unnamed prophet in verse 22, essentially to say, it's no time to relax. He's escaped, and he'll be back, and he'll surely attack you again. And so the whole battle then is bracketed, by God generously intervening to speak and to reveal himself to Ahab, to give him hope, to give him victory. And what does Ahab say in this whole thing? Nothing. He just gets the information and essentially acts as if it's, I'll take it from here. It's all up to me now. Now, can you imagine being so thankless, so brazen, so dismissive, in your treatment of God? Well, again, I actually sadly think we probably can. Time and time again, God actually generously forces his way into our lives, demanding our attention to graciously speak to us, to reassure and to comfort, to challenge and to bring us back to himself. 
Whether we're prepared for it, expecting it, seeking it, sometimes whether we even want it or not, God surprises us. He speaks, whether it's through the sermon that we're only half paying attention to or the Bible study we didn't even want to go to or just randomly a friend that comes and speaks the gospel into our lives. God does this all the time. And how do we respond? So often we just take it and we move on. God shows up to comfort you. Yes, you need to rest more, be more patient, pray for wisdom and opportunities to realize your own limitations and to stop being enslaved to the approval of others. Yes, God, and what do we do? No thanks, no acknowledgement, no awareness of the generosity of God to pursue us and speak to us. But why do we do this? Why is thankfulness so hard for us? Well, I think John Piper helps us. He says that the root of all ingratitude, all unthankfulness, is the love of one's own greatness. For genuine gratitude admits that we are beneficiaries of an unearned bequest. Therefore, while man loves his own glory and prizes his self-sufficiency and hates to think of himself as sin-sick and helpless, we will never feel any genuine gratitude to the true God and so will never magnify God but only himself. As thanklessness convinces us that we don't need anything from God, it makes listening to God irrelevant at best and just uncomfortable at worst. And so although it's confronting, we need to see our thanklessness for what it is and come back to the beauty and kindness and generosity of God revealed to us as we listen to God in the gospel and then give thanks as he deserves. Listen to Colossians 3. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, uh, as you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Just as thankfulness magnifies God, thanklessness magnifies ourselves. And then thirdly, if we want to make a real art form of not listening to God, we will make God small and ourselves big. We see this in verses 23 to 34. As Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, he does what every good coach does at the end of a dismal season. He regroups to rethink strategy and get a fresh perspective on the opposition. And they come up with a solution. They say their gods, that is the God of Israel, their gods are the gods of the hills. That's why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we'll be stronger than they. And so they get new leaders, raise a new army, and in verse 26, the following spring, they march out again to fight Israel. And the battle again on the surface looks ridiculous. Verse 27 is a great picture. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats while the Arameans covered the countryside. The situation looks hopeless, to say the least, until God, again, 
without prompting or request, intervenes through a prophet to speak and to give hope. Verse 28, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is the God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. Because of the trash-talking bad theology of the Arameans, God says, I'm going to reveal myself to you again, this time the you is plural for all Israel to see, as he gives them another unlikely victory. And just like the first battle, the point could not be clearer that this victory belongs to God. The scene deliberately takes us back to Jericho. They camp opposite each other for seven days in verse 29. And after a brief battle that has severe losses to the Arameans in verse 29, those who are left from the army, they run to a place called Aphek in verse 30, where the city walls just happen to collapse and kill 27,000 of them. But what's surprising about this whole story is actually that it's given from the perspective of the Arameans, whose insulting view of God, the true and living God, prompts him into action to show up. And Israel, God's people, well, they kind of just passively get the victory. They get the spoils. And so why is this even in the story? It's because, I think, throughout the whole Bible, we see that it's actually God's people most of all who need reminding and compelling of how big and great their God really is. It's God's people who often have the small and disappointing view of God. And we need to see that we do this. We do this when we think there are areas of our life that God cannot touch, where God has no presence or no control over, We have a small view of God when we think God can't change us, provide for us, fulfill or satisfy us, and we have to do it all ourselves. And we need to see how prone we are to doing this because making God small is the other side of the coin of making ourselves big. (laughs) We see this in Ahab's response in verse 30. Benadad has again escaped from the battle and after two humiliating uh, defeats, he decides to change tactic. Rather than muster another army and fight again, in verse 31, his officials to convince him that humility and groveling might just save their lives. So they put on their humble clothes of sackcloth in verse 32, and he comes to Ahab with a simple request. Your servant, Benadad, says, please let me live. To which Ahab replies, is he still alive? He's my brother. What? Like, what is going on in this scene? I I think this scene is so much like watching the third Star Wars movie, right? Where Anakin Skywalker just makes bad decision after bad decision that you know it's just going to lead him to become Darth Vader, right? And you're watching it and you're just like, no, just, just stop. Because what is Ahab doing? This enemy king that has mocked him, invaded him twice, He finds out he's alive and he's excited. He's my brother. He says, come into my chariot in verse 33, ride with me in honour. And then in verse 34, he lets him set all the terms of a treaty as Benadad essentially pretends he's being generous and saying, well, now that you've defeated me, I'll give you back everything that I took. What is Ahab doing? 
fresh off yet another victory that was so clearly God's at the word and promise of God, Ahab just pretends it was all his idea in the first place. His ego kicks in as the enemy king shows up groveling and he just makes it all about himself. He takes the opportunity to make himself look good as tiny, weak little Israel makes a treaty with the big, bad Arameans. And so here we have a small view of God meet a big view of self. And we need to see that this is exactly what we do when we expect God should operate on our terms and bend everything to our plans and only relate to us in terms of our happiness or prosperity. We do exactly the same when we think we can dictate to God. Uh, One of our year eights, I think, perfectly illustrated this for me last week. We'd been discussing the beauty and glory of the Christian view of marriage with the conclusion that as God's people, we do not have sex before marriage because it's designed to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. To which she simply replied, well, I don't like that, so I'm just going to do it and God will have to forgive me. And I was at first surprised that she could say that so comfortably. But then as I thought about it, well, actually, I think we do all this all the time. We just don't say it. And in fact, more than that, I think we do this exact same thing all the time, but we don't even think we need forgiveness for it. God should just get with the program that we know better. How easily are our prayers purely shaped by our desire for status or comfort? How quickly do we get frustrated when God or church or growth group isn't tailored to our particular needs or wants? How willing are we to make it about all about ourselves and forget that Jesus, Jesus was the one who said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? In his little book, Your God is Too Small, author J.B. Phillips says this, God will inevitably appear to disappoint the man who is attempting to use him as a convenience, a prop, or a comfort for his own plans. But God has never been known to disappoint the man who is sincerely wanting to cooperate with his own purposes. God is most glorious, most satisfying when we see him for who he is and listen to him. But there is not just disappointment in making it all about ourselves there is also real danger. And this, is the, this point is so clear and so confronting in the final verses of the chapter. Uh, they weren't read, so please keep your Bibles open as we get to verse 35. In verse 34, remember the ego and the pride of Ahab is like filling the screen. But then the lens turns in verse 35 to another unnamed prophet. By the word of the Lord, one of the company of the prophets said to his companion, strike me with your weapon, but he refused. So the prophet said, because you have not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. Now, the scene is a little bit random, right? 
But what is super clear about this scene is that the command to strike the prophet is the word of the Lord. God has spoken, this companion disobeys, and the consequence is death. In this case, death by lion. Listening to God is serious, very serious. It's a matter of life and death. And not listening to God, therefore, is no small matter. And although it seems a bit strange on the surface, the prophet seeking to be struck is not random. It's about bringing home that reality that God's word is serious and must be listened to. It's about bringing it home to Ahab. Because in verse 37, he gets his way. The prophet found another man and said, strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. Then the prophet went away and stood by the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself with his headband down over his eyes. So picture it. You have the prophet now bruised and bloody, in disguise, looking like a soldier that's just come back from battle, waiting for a king who may or may not, just by chance, just come from battle. Verse 39. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Your servant went into the thick of battle, and someone came out to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here or there, cool excuse, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. Uh, This scene is so much like Nathan, the prophet, with King David. And Ahab beautifully falls for the trap. He's given the scenario of a soldier failing to do his duty, entrusted with the life of someone that he didn't earn, he didn't take captive, he's just given him the life and said, look after him with the responsibility and failure to do so is death. And Ahab announces the verdict, he falls into the trap and condemns himself. Verse 41, then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I had destined, a determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life and your people for his people. Now, that might seem a little bit harsh to you. Like, how was Ahab possibly to know this? Well, actually, the requirement of this is made very clear in Deuteronomy 20, which Ahab, as the king of Israel, should have well known. But even if you put that aside, Ahab is condemned because he thinks he can take from God and just then make it all about himself. By constantly refusing to listen to God, to acknowledge what God has done and said and provided, Ahab has decided that God's word is both small and insignificant and he is judged for it. And rather than humble himself and seek mercy, rather than cling to the God who has proven himself to be forgiving and kind multiple times in this chapter alone, look at verse 43. Ahab sulks. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. He's not just sulking, he's furious, which beautifully finishes and rounds out this chapter with yet another way, an excellent way, to ensure that you will not listen to God 
Well, it's just to reject and get angry about anything God does say. Ahab is resolved in his commitment to not listen to God, which God himself takes very seriously and acts in judgment. But none of this is really surprising, is it? The Ahab we get to know in 1 Kings 17 to 19 is a king who opposes God's rule, ignores God's revelation, promotes idolatry, and is self-absorbed. Why should any of this surprise us that he won't listen? It's not surprising. But what is surprising and perhaps even shocking here is God. Because I don't know what you would have done, but if I was God and I was coming to 1 Kings 20 and I had big bad Benadad and his 33 armies, I would have thought this would be a great opportunity to teach Ahab a lesson. Let him suffer some insult and humiliation. But God patiently gives him grace. Time and time again, God takes the initiative to speak, to make promises, to give victory, and especially to reveal himself. 1 Kings 20 is a beautiful picture of grace, undeserved and unasked for. And we get this same beautiful picture in the good news of Jesus of God who takes the initiative to send his son into the world to save sinners, to seek and to save the lost, the very ones who reject him and kill him, that while giving his life on the cross for the forgiveness of the very ones who nail him there. Speaking of Jesus in John 1, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Because what is the problem with shutting God out of your life, refusing to acknowledge or thank him, or just making it all about yourself? Well, not only is it a denial of the reality that God does speak and God has revealed himself to us in Jesus, but it's actually to miss out. It is to deprive yourself of the joy of the life-giving relief of listening to Jesus. Jesus says in John 10, "'My sheep listen to my voice.'" I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 1 Kings 20 shows us that God is gracious to keep speaking, but we must listen because God calls us to respond. Grace still calls us to account. Ahab persists in refusing to listen to God and is condemned. And so if you are not yet a follower of Jesus here tonight, grace is on offer to you. As God is taking the initiative still to speak, to get your attention and to offer you life by believing in his son. Why wouldn't you listen to that generous offer 
But for many of us who do trust Jesus and have followed him, 1 Kings 20, I think, is a clear and confronting exposure of how easily we do fall into the trap, into the habits of not listening and how offensive that really is to the true and living God. How tragic that is. So let me ask you right now, how are you going at listening to God? If I or anyone else was to ask you, what has God been teaching you lately? How has God been challenging, changing, confronting or comforting you lately? What would you say? Because often it's when we do not have answers to those questions. It's because we haven't been listening. How are you going at listening to Jesus? Will you learn from Ahab's mistakes and the misery that he endures by taking time every day to make sure that Jesus is at the heart of every decision, ensuring that you acknowledge and thank him for his patience and persistence to speak to us and to make sure that all of your life revolves around not you but him and his beauty and glory because you know it will be good for you when you do. And these are good questions to finish on because they are questions we can ask each other. I'm sure if you're a Christian, you know that a life and habit of constantly, joyfully listening to Jesus does not happen automatically, but needs encouragement and work and help. Hebrews 3 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the very end, just as it has been said today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your patient love and grace to keep speaking to us, to give us hope, to give us life, and to give us joy. Father, we pray now that you would challenge and change us. Father, we confess and we know that we often ignore you. We are thankless. We're self-absorbed. We seek to bend you to our will. So forgive us, we pray, in Christ. And help us tonight to listen to Jesus and help us to help each other keep listening to the voice of our Good Shepherd. For we ask these things in his name. Amen.